This is exactly right. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I am Dr. Dan, your host. Our goal and mission at Parent Footprint is to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. We firmly believe the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same happiness, health, engagement, and of course, awareness. We believe that awareness is the foundation of your very own vision of successful parenting. And with this increased awareness and intention, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint on your children and grandchildren. The title of our show today is Can We Talk? Navigating Parent-Teen Dynamics with Karis Dennison. Let me tell you a little bit about Karis. She's an expert in community involvement, human development, and ethics. She's built her experience primarily by working with schools and nonprofits for more than 20 years. After initially teaching middle and high school, English, and creative writing, she began to develop curricula and public articles related to social justice, ethics, human development, community involvement, and experiential education. She's received national recognition for her work in those fields, as well as for her community-based work with American teens and Tibetan refugees in Central Asia. Most recently, her work was featured in the last chapter of Peggy Ornstein's new book, Girls and Sex. We're going to talk about some of that topic today. Peggy followed her around for two years, learning about the work and listening to the work that she's been doing. Karis holds a master's degree in organizational development from the University of San Francisco, and she's been a faculty member at several prominent and well-respected schools in California, Westbridge School, Urban School in San Francisco, the Branson School, and Marin Academy in San Rafael, to name a few. She runs Prajna Consulting while also maintaining long-term relationships at several Bay Area schools, which also include big names like Hedroy School, University High School, and Sir Francis Drake High School. Karis makes her home in Marin County and in Wyoming, which sounds very cool, with her husband and two children. Karis, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So there is so much I want to ask you about these very important topics, which I think some might see as provocative. But as you talk about, these are the conversations we need to be having with our teens, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, I, I have been, uh, I, somebody recently introduced me somewhere and said that I was known as one of the most radical educators around those topics. And I, uh, the teenagers that I work with, and I laugh so much because the only thing that makes me radical is that when teenagers ask me a question, I answer it. <laughs> That's that says radical. a lot about our country. Right That's now. <laughs> radical, right? You actually answer the question. Yep. Well, why don't we start right there? Because what are, what are these main issues facing teens right now? These questions that you're asked. Well, that's a big one, but um, I really, f I feel so strongly that our, um, in our culture right now, it makes it hard to, to really act in a place that takes care of our well-being, but 
teens, I think, are suffering the most. And I think they're the most underappreciated and misunderstood population. And so uh, I think they're facing that, first of all, which doesn't give them a big, great starting point. But um, I think they're, they're trying to navigate in a world that um, where they are now is the rules they used to work on, which is just to do whatever your parents tell you and everything's going to be okay. They're in that middle ground to, to begin to understand that they need to become their own person. And um, I think there's a lot of minds in the minefield around that, uh, especially the topics that I, that I teach around. Mm-hmm. Well, these questions, these radical questions that you answer, I mean, so for parents listening, we know that our kids don't always feel comfortable asking us some of these um, embarrassing um, questions about um, sex, about drugs. I mean, can you tell us what are some of the things that you're hearing from typical teens these days? Well, really, there's always, and as we know, any of us, I have two teenagers myself, and um, they go between thinking that I'm a goddess and an idiot about 100 times a day, and um, and they're <laughs> yeah. both right. And, uh, yep, but, yep. Uh, <laughs> I feel like there's um, there's the the questions that teens ask, and then there's the question behind the question. And I get a lot of questions, but basically, obviously, what's really helpful to remember is the underlying question is, um, how can I be happy and feel okay? And so, given that, a lot of the questions are are how do I make choices around some of these topics and issues in my life that will end in a sense of joy and honor rather than regret guilt and shame, which is the backbone of my curriculum. So they're trying to navigate how to make a choice that ends well, but they have so many lenses. They have ends well for whom? Their parents, um, their peers, themselves, their church. Like they have a, a thousand different hidden quiet agendas that they're hearing. So I get a lot of questions around those topics, but a lot of it is how do I, how do I move through this and still be proud of myself? Mm-hmm. And as you said, there's so many different lenses. There's so many different outcomes depending on who, which stakeholder you're looking at. Uh, like you said, parents, church, uh, friends. I I know from my own clientele and um, my own teens as well, there's something that's uh, timeless, and that's peer pressure, right? We all had it. They still have it. And they have it on social media in real time, constantly. Yeah. So yeah. what guidelines are you giving them when you're speaking to them to, to, to try to come up with that, what will make me happy and make me feel okay about myself in the end? The beauty of being in this line of work for so long is that I, I just use empirical data. And um, I have a phone number that teens can call or text after they've been through any part of my curriculum that deals just with that. Um, if they're in a situation that could possibly end in regret rather than joy, they can text that. And I get about 40, easily 40 texts a day across the country from teens. And I feel like, again, the, the goal is um, in this quagmire of trying to make these choices. There, What we really do is I give just a very compassionate mirror and I ask them to use the same tools when a hundred years ago, when I taught English, I required my students to reflect, revise, and redraft their essay three or four times before getting a quote-unquote A. But uh, what I really want our culture to try to do for our teens is to allow them to reflect, revise, and redraft the choices that they're making outside the classroom, but that they get an A for simply that process, not the end result. So not like this ended badly, but be rewarded for naming. So 
um, for teenagers who are terrified of being accountable because they are graded and evaluated a thousand times a day. So they're so paralyzed by, by fear because really in their world, whatever choice they make is probably going to be frowned on by one of those populations. And it's, um, and so really my curriculum and why teens gravitate, no matter what kind of teenager they are, they're so hungry for that message that if I simply reward, uh, you know, for example, a male identifying teen for calling me up or coming up to me and saying, can you, can you tell me if, if this was a non-consensual situation I was just in Friday and, um, where that's such a great example of where are the places where that, that teen boy could be rewarded for asking that question rather than shamed or vilified, um, or discounted, but to say you are, you are a hero right now for actually witnessing your own behavior and naming it. And I don't know why in all other subjects, kids get an A for revising and handing something back and getting corrections and then doing it over somehow in their most important experiences, they feel they don't have that opportunity and they're right. So instead of not taking ownership, not taking inventory, tucking something away, you're advocating for this could be a rough draft. This is something that can be revised. This is something where you can, um, in some respects, have a second chance. Absolutely. I mean, and, and, and to, you know, I, we're just, you know, our teens are losing more and more opportunities to actually fail, which is a beautiful, I've done a lot of experiential education and, you know, have taught climbing. And, um, one of the best ways to learn climbing is, is to fall and realize that the ropes work, right? So that then you're going to climb in a very different way, knowing that if you mess up, you're not going to die <laughs> and it changes the path you take. And I, and exactly that, that those teens for them to realize, okay, how, what, what role did regret play? Cause regret, you know, is pretty challenging, but if you can work with it and revise, then you can avoid the other two emotions that are even worse, which is, you know, shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. Shame, guilt, and fear. You're finding those are pretty, predominant emotions that teens are experiencing these days? Shame, guilt, and regret. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's just this big disconnect that I, I, I get really passionate about is that, uh, is that we, we, and my, the, the name of my overarching curriculum is the setup because I think we're setting our young people up to think that they're prepared to move through the world and be successful by simply, you know, developing their prefrontal cortex, which I'm not a big fan of in general, I think it's, it's given way too much importance. And I, I feel like that they're really hungry for a process of being able to, to examine the choices they're making with more compassion. And, um, and that's sort of what I'm after. And that idea of, of trying to, to move through a choice and examine, okay, how did, how is that regretful? How do I go back in and do it over again, where I, I feel more authentic and feel more successful in that wider definition of, of success. An example that I frequently have that's been one for over 20 years is I'll hear from a student of mine who is incredibly assertive. She's um, head of the debate team, incredibly intellectually literate. And so she's set up to feel that she has the tools to really experience joy and, and pride. But that same girl who can correct a teacher in class will talk to me on Monday and tell me that she was at a party and she had some boy's hand on her leg and she couldn't ask him to move it. There's such a disconnect because you're communicating from a different place. And 
our culture doesn't reward teenagers for honoring what they feel. They're just trying to get an A and they're being evaluated on what they think. And as teenagers, if they're thinking first, they're probably thinking someone else's idea and it doesn't usually serve them. And so she feels ashamed when really she, she didn't do anything wrong, but she feels that she failed. So there's this notion that teens um, don't really want to talk to parents all that much, want a lot of space, want parents out of their business and know everything during this time. And yet our job, (laughs) I don't know where that comes from. I don't know know, any idea where that comes from. And yet we still have this job to raise them, to parent them, to continue to instill our values in them. How do you recommend parents do this during this seemingly more fragile or volatile time from a relationship perspective? Wouldn't it be great if I could just say one sentence and then we're done? So yeah, easy. See, I'm asking great. you all these easy questions, <laughs> super easy questions. Well, this is why nobody nobody does what I do because it's it's really, it's super easy to do it badly. But, um, <laughs> yeah, right. and, uh, and, and then, you know, I'll, I'll do, you know, as soon as we're done with this interview, I'll then go back into the living room where my two teenagers are and not do all the things that I'm probably about to tell you. Um, I appreciate you saying that because I'm going to do that when I get home as <laughs> right, well. We're so fair, we're, yeah, late. we're in this together. We're late yeah. to mess up. Um, yeah. But I feel like what's really interesting about this topic that, that never gets old to me is that we, we somehow think that when we get into kind of the dicey stuff, we think that the whole rule book has to change the foundation is still the same, you know, that, that our teens are after three things, which we all are, but they're after connection, recognition, and power. And I, I revamp that and say, they're, they're looking to feel safe, seen, and significant. And so every choice they're making, they're after one or all three of those things. So if we could back up and know that when they get in the car and you say, which you should never say, how was your day? Don't ever say that. But when we say that and they look at you like you're an idiot and say, I don't want to talk to you, that it's not about you. Somewhere in the subtext of that is that they want to feel any of those three things, safe, seen, and important. And, um, and so to simply do that, to, to, to see them. And so, you know, the short version and the answer to that is to, is that there are just some, it's to sort of watch your own parenting. First of all, you know, definitely doesn't have to be a parent, but to find, to plant people in their lives that um, reflect your own values. And then, you know, you can even tell them what to say. A lot of parents will tell me what they wish their child knew, and then I'll tell them, and then their child will come home to their parents and say, you won't believe what Kara said today. (laughs) 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 Um, Mm -hmm. But but to just hold a a mirror up. And um, one example is to really pull back. I, I don't think, I think we need to stop trying to understand and evaluate, but more, um, create situations where our teens just feel seen. They don't need to be understood all the time. In fact, if you have a sophomore, that's insulting because they already know everything and we could never understand. So they do, but so to just to see them and uh, one little example that I say is the three to one rule where every three minutes they talk, you talk for one. And um, if you have a stereotypical boy, because these are all stereotypes because we have to work with something, but if you have a, an average well-adjusted teenager frequently, then you have to bring it down to, you know, for every 50 seconds he talks, you talk for 12. Like, but, um, (laughs) but it's just that idea of, of just seeing them. So of course you said, don't ask the question that we've all asked a hundred times and get that look, like you said, like you (laughs) moron. Um, 
So, um, you know, how was your day? Um, mm-hmm. So, yes, we need, we want to f- have them feel safe, seen, and significant. Breaking this down a little further for our listeners, what are some intro questions that can start this, um, your one minute or 50 seconds to, to see if we can get our kids to talk to us? Yeah. What I do with, with my own uh, children is, and again, we have to acknowledge the fact that a lot of us are parenting teenagers who like live on different planets. So you have two completely different styles of parenting for, for that, each of them. But for one of mine, where that would be a, a disaster is they get in the car and I say, hi, I love you. And then, uh, and then I'm a big fan of letting them use devices in the car. I'm, you know, people will probably turn the radio off right now, but, um, I just, they've, they've been on all day and they've been feeling like they've been watched all day, whether it's social media, their peers, their teachers. So whatever self-care looks like for them, once they get in that car or on that bus or back in the house, I just basically say something that says, I see you. And then, and then see what happens. Often teens will, will test you unconsciously or consciously, you know, as you know, and where they'll, they'll say something like, you know, today totally sucked. And, and a lot of us fall into that trap of like, let's really sit down and talk about that. <laughs> it could <laughs> have been you, that bad. Come uh, no, on. Tell or me that's that, the yeah. other one. Oh, come yeah, on. Yeah. It's like, a, yeah, um, yeah. or this is a perfect opportunity for me, for me to now tell you the entire reproductive anatomy and all the drugs that are really, really dangerous. Like, right. um, but, but if you, if you just basically say, um, wow, that sucks. Yeah. That's a test. And if you don't say anything, they're sitting there thinking, wait, where's the less, where's the lesson? Where's the thing that's going to, and then a lot of, then it's like, you know, it's like a little bird. Then you, (laughs) you, you, you create the space and if they don't step into it, they don't step into it. And, and they feel honored for the fact that they haven't. And the great thing is they get questions a hundred times a day, which for very good reason, they doubt the sincerity of, because usually there's an agenda. They're going to get graded or they're going to get judged. So to even allow them to to keep that silence and to, to simply just respond with, wow, that really sucks. I'm sorry. A lot of times then that test will then, they'll give you some a little more information. And again, you're just responding to simply exactly what they say and trying to show that you're just, you're, you're there and you're acknowledging the challenge that they've had all day and not trying to get to how did it turn out? What choice did you make? Of just simply acknowledging the fact that you know they had a rough go. Uh, yeah, re- you're reminding me of going to a talk years ago about talking to your teen, and you know the the classic. You're driving in the car, and they're in the front and the back, and they come out with, "Gosh, you know, there's just a lot of people um, were using drugs at that party I went to," mm-hmm. and and then the uh, instructor saying, "So you know, so how do you respond to that?" You know, and half the half the audience is. Well, who were they? Because we need to know, right? And uh, and know that the real answer was, mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Or oh. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yep. Mm. Um, Keep them talking. Yeah. It was it. Yeah. It's <laughs> and it's so and, and they're they're waiting for it because they they expect it and it's it's so refreshing to, to have the opposite happen because what, what I like to say and myself in the mirror at night, but when I say to a lot of the parents that I talk to is that you really need to remember that, um, middle school or the beginning of high school as a parent, you just started a triathlon and you're on the bike. 
Um, <laughs> and so if you're, if you're going to pull out all your cards and all your techniques and, um, you're, you're going to be like, you know, evacuated by the end of the swim, you're never even going to make it to like the run. Yeah. And so basically it's pacing yourself and having them, you know, I just, I'm so in love with this population and they're just, it's amazing how hungry they are to know that they're unconditionally loved and for them to mess up several times a day means they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Not that they're just holding their breath and editing and monitoring their behavior because they're not growing that way. So just that. And once they realize that, like the idea that teens, if you ask any teen that I've worked with and there've been like a gajillion, the biggest thing they love is that my only agenda is no agenda except joy for them and that they get to decide what that is and terms like make good choices and think before you act are bumper stickers we create for ourselves to give us this nice false sense of control and to try to quell the fear that we have. And so, yeah, they just, it's remarkable. They just line up like, ah, oh, it's amazing how hungry they are for those opportunities to simply take up that space. Right. And as a, and as an educator who is passionate about this population and loves working with this population and they're not being, they're not your kids you get to put the fear aside so you could really engage with them and listen to them. And it made me think how much fear drives our parenting behavior. Um, the whole thing about parent footprint is we need to be aware of this stuff so we know what we bring to the room. And when our kids are talking to us about or we're going to go to parties and we all know that people are using drugs and alcohol and we're concerned people are going to drive under the influence and, you know, well, we trust you. It's not just everyone else we trust. There's so much fear that comes into these conversations, I find, um, with parents and with myself. Like, how do you recommend parents deal with that to actually be able to engage in this way so their kids are seen as are seen safe and significant? Exactly. I, I it's such, I mean, that if, and if we could do that, things would change so much. And, and what I would say in immediate response is if you're in a moment with your own teenager and you're about to open your mouth, if you could practice asking yourself the question, who am I taking care of with the sentence I'm about to say? Because a lot, very often in situations that deal with the choices they're making, especially around sexuality, ethics, um, and drugs and alcohol, whatever is about to come out of our mouths is usually trying to take care of us. And so to reframe that question the same way we would if we're listening to our teen, what's behind my question? It's, I love you. I want you to thrive. I want you to experience as little regret as possible. And then what I say, one of my sayings is work backwards, think sideways. So if our goal is that we're going to work our way out of a job, which means they're going to leave the house feeling you know, completely autonomous and adjusted. And this wonderful thing I tell myself when I go to bed at night, um, that <laughs> we sometimes need to look at our child as, as simply that one particular individual and what, what sort of behavior and questions um, would lead them closer to that particular goal. And so I think sideways a lot uh, with the teenagers in my classroom and with my own kids. And so really stepping back and Again, asking yourself, who am I taking care of and how I do this? And, um, and to consistently be honest with them. So, you know, it's just like, and to pull back and name the fear when you see it. In my curriculum, that's what my students are, are taught to do, that um, 
we don't think before we act, we feel, think, act, and acknowledge that every thought that occurs in the brain, I teach neurobiology because of the drugs and alcohol component, and every actual, you know, cognizant thought we we think is actually preceded by an emotion or a situation, and that thought is in response to that, but we teach it right out of our kids. And so if we can have them step back and say, what what were you feeling, and then then what did you think and how did that correspond? If we could do that in our parenting as well, I think we'd be a whole lot better off. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that is really good. And that might be the answer to the question I'm about to ask you, which is fine. But so <laughs> I like to ask our guests, what is one thing, you know, try to break this thing down. So in terms of how we can, you know, t- we can talk successfully and meaningfully with our teen to have that opportunity, what is one thing you would be suggesting to our listeners today to do? And the goal would be what, Dr. Dan? The goal would be if there's one thing that they can do to increase their ability to have a meaningful and a successful conversation with their teen. Yeah. Again, I like to say, the other thing I say is this isn't complicated, it's just hard. So to try to not, you know, we, we like to over-intellectualize and we like to read a lot of books that tell us we're not the expert of our own kid, which is really damaging. But what we do is we, we consistently keep it simple and we honor the process of whatever they're sharing or doing, not the end result, because they're not used to it. And it's really good practice because in the real world, that will serve them a lot. So we're encouraging them to reflect, revise and redraft, but they get credit for the reflection part and the revision, and then the redrafting is way at the, at the end of the line. So for example, your kid comes home and at the dinner table, you know, if we've graduated beyond highlight, low light, I, I like to do what was hard today, or how did you, how did you feel like you screwed up? Did anyone feel anything that ended in regret versus joy or the other way around? But to have, let's say your kid says, you know, um, I was a total jerk today. Someone said this really sexist remark and I was with a bunch of my friends and uh, I laughed. And in that moment, it's so important that that is not a teachable moment, except to be able to look your kid right in the eye and say, that is a really heroic thing to say. Like, that is amazing that you were able to witness yourself in that way. That, that is, it's a total setup, isn't it? Super hard. You know, your, your back's against the wall. Excellent job. And then he's like, oh, like what we're trying trying to do is, is they're so ready to go to shame. And the hardest part about being a teen, especially if you have great parents, because that makes it even harder, is that they're paralyzed into thinking that they're going to disappoint us uh, all the time. And that that idea is that you won't, that you're rewarded for holding up a mirror to yourself, uh, which what I call radical compassion with radical kindness and realize it is so important right now to learn how to love yourself through this process because it is so challenging. So as parents, you just sit in that process of what they say and encourage them. And that means they have a place to do that. And once they have that, you always have something to work with. I always say, think whatever you need to do to keep the connection. Granted, if they're being horrific to you and disrespectful, you know, I will say to my own children, I, you know what, I love you. I'm going to leave the room right now because I recommend you never stay in the room if someone's talking to you like this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I'm going to step out and I love you, but um, you've now lost the privilege of having any conversation with me at this point. Right. But you keep the connection because at that point, that, that teenager will know that they can come back. 
the worst thing is to feel that they have lost the connection. Yeah. And so I want to highlight this honor the process. So there's two, there's a lot of things that you said in there that are really important. Um, Distilling it is honor the process. And the subtext, which I love that you said, is not every moment is a teachable moment. And I feel in this new parenting culture, we're like, we're supposed to be teaching all the time. And that is counterproductive to what we're talking about, what you're talking about here with staying connected and, and and providing a um, a space for our kids to be able to tell us their feelings in a safe place without us delivering something, assigning a grade, or giving them something that might um, bring on some shame or, reg- or regret from us. Exactly. And in doing that, um, we're role modeling for them. That's the teachable moment is that you you role model. What does it look like when you you're at a loss and you feel like you're supposed to be doing something. You're not exactly sure what to do. It's really great for our kids, especially in, you know, what I call the unique and perfect myth time when they constantly feel they're supposed to be really unique and perfect, that it doesn't help if we're trying to do the same thing as parents. And so just the power of in a moment to say, well, I'm totally at a loss right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, have, yeah. I have no idea what to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then sometimes to even be like, what, what would you do? Yeah, yep. if you had a kid you really yep. loved and and felt mm-hmm. totally out of your league. Yeah. Totally throws them off. They're like, "Wait, what?" Yeah. <laughs> um, you? you actually you want to yeah. know what I what I feel and think? Yeah. What's the hitch? Am I grounded if I get the wrong answer? Like um <laughs> I I just feel like it's it's it, I just, you know, I I say to my students, I didn't I didn't lie in bed when I was 9 and say, "Someday I'm going to be a sex and drug educator." <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, but I did fall in love with this population because they are the bravest, most amazing population that is is at the most we're at such risk of of not allowing them to become the people we really need them to become because we're raising them as if they're the people we're afraid they're going to become. And so mm-hmm. I don't get in every other curriculum you're not taught only how to not get an F. You're taught how to succeed in your best capability in that subject area. But in this, it's like, don't get raped. Don't rape anybody. Don't do drugs. Don't get pregnant. Don't get an STI. It's like, if the bar is don't end up in situations that are painful or cause pain to others, that's great. But they need examples of what would that look like? What would joy and success look like that benefits everyone? And if we leave them to just porn and really bad curriculum at a time when they're not sharing a lot of their most intimate situations with their parents. It's just, I I find that morally reprehensible. Mm -hmm. You just said several things that make me want to ask you several more questions, but that's (laughs) going to be a cliffhanger for a (laughs) follow-up episode on all of these important issues of sexuality and drugs. Um, And it's time for the Parent Footprint Moment question, which is a very different question than those. So everyone, hold on for part two. Okay, Parent Footprint Moment question. Tell us about a time when you became aware of yourself as an individual or parent, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your child. I love this. And I think it's so great to allow parents to actually think of something like that because we're so quick to think of all the things we screwed up on. But when my, I was in the grocery store and, and I was with my two children who are only 22 months apart. So I was in that situation where they're too big for the shopping cart, but um, they're still small enough where 
you know, it's it, trying to keep track of them is like herding cats. So we were in the line put in, I was putting um, the items on the conveyor belt. There was a long line behind us and they were each holding onto a pant leg of mine. And there was a man behind me, um, you know, dressed very nicely, business person. And, uh, and he leaned forward to me and he said, Hey, you know, lady, could you just hurry up? And, uh, and I was like, huh. So I, you know, I'm trying to role model my curriculum which, which is to honor <laughs> the feel, think, act. Don't just mm-hmm. honor what am I feeling? What do I think is going on? And now how do I move forward with the least amount of regret for myself and others? So I like, I'm all happy with myself. And I, I say, Hey, you know, we're all doing the best we can. Given the fact, you know, I have these two growths on my legs, I think I'm moving at a pretty good clip. And uh, <laughs> and then, you know, like 10 seconds go by and he leans forward again, uh, really kind of in my face and says, lady, look, hurry the hell up uh, or just get out of the way. And so in that moment, my children who are very different from one another, as far as self-care, my daughter, who's fairly introverted, she moved away um, to try to hide away from the, the energy. And so I leaned down to comfort her and my son turned around <laughs> and this was when he was five. My daughter was six and a half. And um, he went right up and he stood underneath the man before I could get to him and looked up at him and said very clearly, do you have sadness inside of you? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I, I turned around and I was so, you know, we hadn't had lessons on if this happens, this is what you do. I, in that moment, I, I realized that the, the power of how we emphasize empathy and naming that everything we do is in response to a feeling was pretty powerful. And, and what was great in that moment was that it wasn't like this beautiful scene where he was like, oh, I realize I've, you know, it was nothing <laughs> yeah, like that. But um, right. And meanwhile, I live in Marin County. So I'm like, what are you late for meditation? Like where, what, what's going on? Um, <laughs> right. So he said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, my mom says that if people are this mean, then they have a lot of sadness uh, or scaredness inside of them. And then he offered to hug the man, which, of course, at that point, I'm like, don't hug the sad man. Back, back away from the sad man. But, um, but it, was, it was really incredible because – and the guy was, you know, he was basically humiliated by a, a very small individual. And he dumped his stuff and left the store, and there was this round of applause from the lines nearby. And I, I didn't need to say anything. I just, you know, I, the love that I had for my child, but also the awareness that, um, we have, we have a limited skill set. you know, the idea that we think we can turn our kids into exactly the people we want them to be is arrogant and, you know, dumb. But the idea that it was such a powerful moment to know that he, that my, both my children are phenomenal people, as well as my students that, I, they have so much to teach us and that if we keep it simple, we, we give them the tools to find success on their own rather than giving them all these rules to follow. So it was just a really great moment. That, that is a great moment of a, uh, of a evolved soul, your son, an evolved soul at that time. So everyone listen to this. When someone cuts you off on the freeway and screams at you, Look at them and ask them if they have sadness inside them. <laughs> Our right world would be such off, a right? better place. Exactly. <laughs> right before you give them the finger. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Karis. Thanks so much for joining us today. And this is just, we've just like scratched the surface of your experience and wisdom. So tell people 
where they can um, follow your work, your consulting, your talks, um, so they can uh, learn more. Yeah, I mean, if, um, if there aren't a lot of Karis Denison, so um, Google me. I have I have a couple TED Talks. Uh, one of them I did with a 17-year-old boy, especially with the Me Too movement. It's so important that we love our boys for being the people that we hope they become rather than, you know, treat them as potential predators um, or innocent victims. So check those out. And, and my website is progenaconsulting.com. Check it out, everyone. Karis, thanks so much for uh, joining us. And I have lots of more questions to ask you. So I hope we could do this again sometime. I would love that. Thank you. All right, everyone. That concludes our show today. Can we talk navigating parent-teen dynamics with Karis Dennison? Thank you for your wisdom. As you heard, try to provide safe, seen, and significance to your teen. Help them seek outcomes of joy versus regret. Honor the process and be aware Try to be the person you want them to become. And as Kara says, treat them like the people you want them to become. And ask yourself the question I ask myself daily. What footprint do you want to leave?